Well, there are a lot of different opinions about this subject matter, but I'm curious about yours. Are leaders made or born? Uh, just a quick show of hands. How many of you believe that leadership is kind of like being born with blue eyes? Either you have them or you don't. Go ahead and raise your hand. Hey, all you have to do is watch kids interact for about five minutes to realize there is something to this idea of being a natural born leader. I promise you in every elementary school, there is at least one kid who will have his classmates or her classmates playing the games that she or he wants to play within five minutes of hitting the blacktop at recess. There are going to be little boys tomorrow who yell out goose instead of playing dodgeball because some little girl with natural born leadership skills convinced them you want to play duck, duck, goose. We see that all the time. There is something to that, but does that mean that you can't be a leader if you're not born with this natural trait? Well, not according to author Stuart Friedman. Friedman did a deep dive in preparation for his book, Leading the Life You Always Want. He did a deep dive into the characteristics of men and women who are regarded as outstanding leaders in their respective fields. And his research led him to this conclusion that every single person, every single person has the capacity to become an effective leader. Now, that's good news this morning, at least it is to me. Let me tell you why. Because we seem to be in a period in our history in which there is a shortage of strong, capable leaders. Now, if we have to wait around for the next wave of great leaders to be born, we're in big trouble. We don't have time for that. The world is a mess in many ways, right? There is so much that needs to be fixed in government, in corporate America, in the home, even in the church. We need everyday people leading the way when it comes to restoring these broken places in our society right now. Now, that's one of the reasons that we're revisiting this story of Nehemiah. You may not be a natural-born leader, but if you will live out the principles that are modeled by this man of God, you will become an effective leader. So let's go back to our story or pick up our story. Once Nehemiah convinced his boss that he needed to go back to the city of Jerusalem, once he got the boss's blessing and his support, he started that trek back to the city of Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, the second after that chapter, he gives a detailed account of how he spent his first few days in that city. And based upon his account, we can pick up or discern some principles that made him an effective leader. Now, the first principle that he models for us, it may come as a surprise to you, but here it is. This is it. Effective leaders value rest. Effective leaders value rest. Now, many of us might be saying that doesn't sound right. I, I mean, there is so much to do. If you're a leader, you don't have time to slack off. You got to be blowing and you got to be going. I mean, you got to get things done. There's no time to take a moment off. And no doubt, oftentimes leaders are going to work harder than anyone else. We see this in this text that there were times that Nehemiah worked when the rest of the city was asleep. 
But at the same time, you, you can't deny the fact that Nehemiah understood the importance and the value of rest. We read these words in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I imagine when Nehemiah arrived in the city of Jerusalem, he was anxious to get started. There was a lot of work to do, but instead of immediately taking action, he took time to recoup, and rightfully so. It was roughly 900 or so miles that trek from Susa to Jerusalem. That's a long distance. How do you feel after you've driven 900 miles? I don't know about you, but I'm beat. All I want is a hot shower and a good meal and a warm bed. That, that's all I want. Now imagine spending four months on the back of a donkey or a horse to cover that distance. All of a sudden, three days doesn't sound like nearly enough time to recoup, does it? Now rest, well, that doesn't come easy for most effective leaders because they feel such a great sense of urgency to accomplish what they've been entrusted to do. However, rest is an absolute must. You say, why exactly is that? Well, there are several reasons, but one is simply this. Your body is not designed to go nonstop. It's just not. And if you don't take time to rest, eventually your body will shut down and it will force you to rest. Now, some of you are thinking, Smith, shutting down's for the weak. No, it's not. Every single body shuts down if it doesn't get proper rest. That's not weakness, that's just reality. Even the Energizer Buddy has to have his batteries recharged every once in a while, right? Some of you, you're tired. You're great leaders, but you're tired, you're worn out. You need some rest because your body's just not gonna make it. Some of you are feeling the effects of that. Uh, you hurt. You're struggling. It's because you're going nonstop. Second reason that we need to rest, God wants us to rest. He wants us to rest. God created for six days, and then he took a day to rest. Why is that? Is it because that poor old guy was just worn out from all that hard work? No. God never tires, does he? I think one of the reasons he did that was to model for us this principle of living in a healthy work-rest rhythm of life. This was so important to him that he said to the Israelites, here's what I want you to do. I'm commanding you to observe a Sabbath rest. I want you to get rest. This matters to God. There's a third reason, and that's simply this. We're not very effective when we don't get enough rest. We don't function well. Now, you might be able to do all right for a period of time, but eventually exhaustion leads to careless mistakes and rash decisions and emotional responses. And those are the types of behaviors that inevitably undo a whole lot of good. So the first thing Nehemiah did as being an effective leader, he just, he just got some rest. But after taking a few days to recoup and recover, Nehemiah got busy. What did he do first? Well, he didn't do what a lot of leaders typically do today. He didn't call a press conference to make grandiose promises to the people that he desired to lead. He, he didn't go throughout the city of Jerusalem handing out bumper stickers that said, make Jerusalem great again. 
to put on the backside of their camp or the, their donkeys, right? I suppose if you put a bumper sticker on the backside of a donkey, you'd call that a rumper sticker, not a bumper sticker. <laughs> All right, that, that was a poor dad joke, but it made me laugh. <laughs> He didn't do any of that, did he? Instead, he didn't do that because he realized the people of Jerusalem, they didn't need a slogan. They needed a plan. And so before he spoke a word about his vision for the city, Nehemiah just got an assessment of what was really going on. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone my God put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered to the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. The second leadership lesson that Nehemiah models for us is this, effective leaders do their homework. They take the time to assess the situation that is in front of them, so that they can work out what needs to be done for the vision to be accomplished. Look, slogans and speeches are nice. Slogans and speeches inspire people. But for progress to be made in our families, in our communities, in our organizations, in our churches, we need a well-thought-through plan. For instance, parents, we can get in the habit of giving a great speech to our family at times. We pull them all together and say, hey, family, we're not seeing each other enough. We're not spending enough time together. And we give this great speech, and everybody gets inspired, and, and nothing changes. It's just kind of the same old, same old, except for that moment in time. Maybe to be an effective leader for your family, you need to step back and you need to assess why is it that in our family we barely have time to say hello to each other. Maybe you need to step back and, and put together a plan of how you can spend more time together, even if that means simply eating dinner together around the table on real plates one night a week. You say, well, that's not much. No, it's not, but that's progress. And that's what effective leaders do. They move the ball forward one inch at a time. They make progress. Assess, plan, and make progress. Now, perhaps the most important leadership lesson that Nehemiah models for us is this. Effective leaders inspire others to follow their lead. And really, that is the essence of leadership. You may be designated with a title as leader, you may have the title of boss or chair or manager or whatever it is, and you've got that title. But if you look behind you and nobody is following you, you're just taking a walk. Now, it may be a good walk, and it might be a walk that other people need to take, but you're not leading anyone anywhere. For you to be a leader, there have to be people who follow you. When the people of Jerusalem heard Nehemiah's plan, they started lining up behind him. We read in verse 18 these words. 
They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Persuading the king of Persia to overturn his previous decision that said, we're not going to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to say, yes, it's okay, go rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Well, that was pretty remarkable. I'm impressed with that, that Nehemiah was able to pull that off. But what's even more impressive to me is this right here, that he's able to show up in a city, assess the situation, present a plan, and have everybody in the city say, let's do this. Hey, I'm in on this. I want to be a part of this. Most every leader can anticipate at least one or two people hearing their plan and saying, you know what? No, thank you. Not interested. You can usually anticipate at least one other person saying, you know what? We tried that before. It didn't work. You can anticipate one or two people saying, you know what? We don't really like change. Let's just leave it as it is. Or some other worn out, tired excuse for not making progress. But Nehemiah he didn't seem to get any of that, at least from his own people, the Jewish people. The people of Jerusalem responded with an enthusiastic, let's do this. Wow. Wouldn't you love to hear that in your own family? Parents come up with a plan for the whole family, say, I'm in, let's do this. Wouldn't you love to hear that in your organization, your company, the people you lead? Wouldn't you love to hear that at church? Just everybody on board, let's get after this. How did Nehemiah pull this off? Well, first, I think it's really important for us to recognize that God was all over this. God was the one in the midst of this, creating this. I believe that one of the reasons that everybody lined up behind Nehemiah is because of the work God had been doing on their hearts to receive him. And so we want to first give recognition to God and give him all the glory for what took place. But at the same time, I believe there are some things that we can learn from Nehemiah's pitch to the people that he was uh, trying to get on board with his plan. Nehemiah, first, he began by pointing out the reality of their situation. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Why did Nehemiah feel the need to remind the people that their city was still in ashes and rubble? I mean, they'd been living there for a while now, several years. Didn't they know that? Didn't they recognize that? Well, of course they did. And I imagine when those people first left Babylon, and they went back to Jerusalem. They saw the state of their city. It was tragic, and it probably broke their heart as well. We talked about 13 years earlier that Ezra tried to rebuild the city, and it it was a no-go. It got shut down, and so you still got broken down walls and burned down gates, and everybody sees them. But here's the deal. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to become just kind of comfortable with what is, just kind of accept it, even though you know it's not the way it should be, that it's still kind of messed up? Yeah. I think that's the reason Nehemiah started here. Just try to open their eyes. Hey, take a look around. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And that's what leaders often have to do. Leaders often have to try to open up the eyes of people around them to see things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And even when people don't want their eyes to be opened, and a lot of times we don't, do we? 
We're just kind of content and comfortable. We don't want anybody to come along and disrupt our way of life. But leaders, they step into that and they say, this, is, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. You know, sometimes the leader has to say, hey, to the family, you know what? Sports and school activities have taken over our lives. And that's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And sometimes in your companies, somebody has to step up and say, you know what? Profits have become more important than people. And that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And sometimes a leader at a church has to stand up and say, you know what? We've become so focused upon ourselves and who we are and all the things we enjoy that we're not really thinking about the people outside of these walls that don't know Jesus. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's hard to do, but sometimes leaders have to try to open people's eyes because they need to be opened. The next thing Nehemiah did was he identified with the people. Notice he'd only been there for a few days, but he described their situation as a we problem, not a you problem. Verse 17, you see the trouble we are in. Nehemiah made sure that the people knew that he wasn't just some consultant sent by the king of Persia to fix this eyesore of a city that they lived in. He wanted to make sure that they knew he wasn't there just to bark out orders, but he was actually there to get his hands dirty. If the walls weren't rebuilt, if the gates weren't repaired, it wasn't just their problem, it was his problem as well. People are far more likely to follow your leadership if they know you are one of them and not just somebody that's kind of removed from them. So make sure you identify with the people that you've been entrusted to lead to the best of your ability. Now, what Nehemiah did next is as important, if not more important, than any else, anything else that he did when it came to trying to get people on board. He shared with them a compelling vision. Continuing in verse 17. Come, let us re- rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. This is what I want to understand. Nehemiah's vision was far more than just improving homeland security. Walls and gates were important to keep the city safe, yes. But it went beyond that, way beyond that. What Nehemiah was really interested in was this, restoring Jerusalem to her rightful place among the nations. That's what he wanted for this city. In Psalm chapter 48 and verse 2, the psalmist paints a poetic picture of the role that Jerusalem was supposed to play in the world. We read these words, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion or Jerusalem, the city of the great king. This is who Jerusalem was meant to be, a great city, an inspiring city, a joy-giving city, a God-glorifying city, the city in which God dwells. This may not be who Jerusalem was at that particular moment, but by saying so that the city will no longer be in disgrace, what Nehemiah was doing was saying, this is who Jerusalem can be. This is the vision. This is what we want to restore. This is why it's important. Do you know what the difference is between a critic and a leader? A critic is able to point out everything that's wrong. A critic's able to come in and say, oh, look around, you've got burned down gates and broken down walls. They can criticize, they point that out, they're really good at that. Leaders, 
Leaders have a vision for what can be. They can see what can be. Critics often have people who will listen to them, but very rarely do they have people who will follow them. Leaders get people to follow them because people want vision. They want to see and be a part of what can be. People line up behind you if you've got vision. And if nobody's following your leadership at home or in the company that you work at or within your ministry that you oversee here at this church, it very well may be a vision problem. Maybe you're not compelling, you're providing that compelling vision. And maybe the reason that you don't have that vision is simply because you're not spending enough time listening to God. You see, Nehemiah didn't come up with this vision because he took a, a night ride around the city to see all the things that were wrong. This vision came because he spent night after night in conversation with God. And he recognizes this in verse 12. He said, I had not told anyone what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah's example reminds us that every great vision really should be coming from God, what he wants for us, for, for the people that he's entrusted us to lead. And so let's make sure that we're listening to him. Because if vision comes from any other place, more often than not, it's just our own personal desire. And so listen well to God's vision for the people that he's entrusted you to lead in the home, in your workplace, in this church. Now, another reason that people followed Nehemiah is because he invited them to do so. He didn't say, I'm going to build a wall. He said, let us rebuild the wall. It was an invitation to join in. If nobody's following your leadership. It may be because you're doing all the work or you're spending so much time doing all the work, you're not spending nearly enough time inviting people to join you. And you know what happens or who you attract when you do all the work yourself? You attract spectators, not followers. If you want followers, you got to invite people to participate with you. Ministry leaders, I, I want to speak to you for just a moment. If you really want people to be involved in your ministry, whatever it is that you're passionate about leading here, you got to invite people to join in. You say, oh, but it's so much easier to do the work. It's quicker and faster and less complicated, and I get all that. But you're not going to have followers if you, all, you do it. You'll get spectators. And so you need to invite now, let me say this. It needs to be more than an announcement in the Friday newsletter or an announcement at the end of a church service, right? That's all fine and good. We'll do those things. But here's what great leaders do. They sit down one-on-one. -on -one, they look people in the eye and say, this is why we need you to be involved in this ministry. This is how you can bless this ministry. This is how you can make a difference for the kingdom of God. Here's why we can't do it without you. And do it one-on-one. -on -one. And so if you're leading a ministry, I want to encourage you to find people to have those conversations with. And we'll talk more about the importance of do, doing ministry together next week. Now, the final reason the people of Jerusalem were willing to follow, follow Nehemiah is because he gave them a reason to follow his leadership, a reason to believe in him. He says in verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. When the people heard that Nehemiah had received the blessing of God and the support of the king, they, they knew this is a guy worth lining up behind. He's the right guy. One of the best ways to attract a, a followers 
is to make sure there's evidence in your life that the gracious hand of God is on you. And so pursue God more than anything else. So as we wrap things up, let me ask you a question. Where's your leadership needed most right now? Where's it needed most right now? Is it in the home? Is it in your company? Is it at school? Is it here at church? Maybe a couple of different places. Please think with me. Be thoughtful about this. Don't just say, oh, we're almost to the end of the sermon. Think about it. Where's your leadership most needed most right now? Wherever it is, what do you need to do to be a more effective leader? Do you need rest? Some of you feel guilty saying, yes, it's okay. Don't feel guilty. If you need rest, you need rest. Get the rest. It may be the best thing you can do for those who are following you. Get rest. Do you need to assess the situation before you and come up with a plan? Plan for your family. Plan for the people you lead at work. Assess it. Take the time to do that. Do your homework. Do you need to figure out why people aren't following your leadership? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I am a leader, but nobody seems to be following. I don't know what's going on. That can be very humbling, right? It's humbling for all of us. I am there often. I wonder what's going wrong. Take the time. Try to figure it out. What's missing there? How can you inspire people to follow your lead? Whatever you need to do, do it. Now, you may be thinking, why? I'm not a born leader. Maybe you're not, but I want you to hear me clearly. You were born to lead. You were born to lead someone. It may just be one person, but you were born to lead someone closer to Jesus Christ. So be the best leader you can be. 